Welcome to the, the new uh, T-Quorum, our weekly series taking place uh, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, these short-form events are designed to provide an opportunity to learn about the latest advancement, advancements in the space and uh, to help the Tezos ecosystem grow. Uh, we're excited today to be hosting another Tezos Town Hall. Uh, our panel of experts today is uh, includes uh, Gabriel Alford, uh, the lead developer uh, for uh, Lego Lang. Uh, Arthur Brightman, uh, early architect uh, of, of the Tezos project. Uh, uh, Adrian Brink, uh, founder at uh, Metastate. Uh, and Benjamin Knu, uh, CTO at Nomadic Labs. Uh, I'll be moderating uh, the conversation based on questions uh, submitted uh, by you know, the community uh, in advance of the session, uh, but feel free to you know, ask questions to the panel directly in the chat, and we'll get to as many of them uh, as we can. Uh, so maybe to, to, to kick things off, um, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, there's basically a, a joint post uh, published, uh, you know, basically describing a new plan for uh, regular scheduling of uh, amendment proposals. Uh, could you could you know give us uh, a little more information or or uh, the thought process behind uh, how this plan was developed and and what makes it uh, important for Tessas? Uh, whoever wants to to go first, maybe uh, Gabriel, since you uh, yeah. you published uh, it. <laughs> I can answer. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it, it's found that uh, the, the previous proposal uh, was delayed by a bit. Uh, what uh, might be less known is that when this happens, there is this uh, phenomenon where everyone that has any merge request uh, who wants it to be merged will then be more afraid uh, that if their merge request is not merged in the next proposal, then it won't be uh, like they will have to wait even longer to get merged into the next, uh, like uh, the, the next one, the proposal coming after. Uh, basically, there there is this uh, like uh, a vicious uh, circle there. So uh, at some point, we, we just had to break it uh, and say, uh, regardless of the state of the values that are, we will strip down uh, the the current proposal branch to only uh, what is ready right now, uh, publish it, and then. Uh, get back to a regular uh, schedule, regardless of what is ready. The main idea being that uh, from now on, uh, if I have a proposal that I want, uh, or a marriage request, or an amendment that I want to integrate into Tezos, I don't have to be afraid about any kind of scheduling. I don't have to rush what I'm doing uh, with all the negative consequences that rushing a proposal or an amendment can have. Uh, I can just be assured that uh, whenever uh, my change is ready, at least uh, three months later, uh, it can get merged and integrated. So the, that's the main goal. Uh, from uh, my personal standpoint, I think this is a very reasonable uh, thing to do. Uh, it, it's just that it's hard to commit to this because this is a very like uh, this is a very collaborative process to decentralized and things like this. So it required uh, a lot of uh, work and help basically to to get to this thing. Uh, it sounds trivial when you put it like this, uh, but it actually requires a fair amount of effort. Yeah, I think one, one thing which didn't make it that trivial is that this is clearly the right strategy uh, at this point in history. It may not have been the right strategy to pursue at the very beginning, because at the very beginning, there was a window of opportunity to make potentially breaking changes uh, to, the, to the protocol because it was still fairly new. Um, there weren't uh, applications that potentially depended on those features. And I think basically that last train was, uh, I would say, probably Babylon, which had a bunch of breaking features 
Uh, and it was important to basically put them in and not delay these breaking features. It was better to delay the proposal rather than delay the breaking features just to make sure that they could be gotten in er very early. But now that we're kind of past that stage, the scheduling based on time as opposed to feature makes a lot more sense. Obvious exactly when the cutoff point is because this is, of course, on the spectrum, it happens over time. So, yeah. Admittedly, uh, we, we can say that the core teams are struggling a bit to adapt to this because uh, it's quite a cultural change, uh, you know, and also uh, we still have in the, in the back room some uh, very large features uh, that were developed as, uh, as big, bulk, big bulks uh, that uh, were going to be pushed in major updates. Uh, so probably the way uh, it's going to uh, um, to be now with that, we'll uh, design more incremental roadmaps so we can push uh, incremental changes. Uh, so let's, for instance, uh, <clears throat> at Nomadic and uh, don't work with uh, Gabriel's team, we are working on a new uh, interpreter for Mikkelsen that should uh, bring a dramatic uh, performance uh, increase. And probably previously we would have designed this as a big change, you know, a major update with the new interpreter. And this will be turned into a roadmap of incremental changes so that uh, during the next few releases, we can progressively uh, bring this new, uh, uh, these new uh, performances. So yeah, so we are adapting. Uh, and uh, I think you're seeing the evolution uh, with 007 and 008, um, which are still a bit uh, in the middle, let's say, uh, in terms of uh, development structure. Yeah. I'm personally very excited about shipping with a regular release train because I think it will help a lot with the stress to manage the stress levels with the core development teams. Uh, just nice to know that there's another boat leaving or another train leaving the station every three months. Or actually, I guess now every two and a half months if 008 activates. Um, but we can come to that later. Uh, uh, one thing I also. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh. No, I was just going to ask Arthur, like, you know, you, you know, you, how did you envision it when you, um, you know, when you were uh, originally thinking about Tezos? Like, you know, did you, um, you know, did you, did you think in terms of time versus features, or not that they're necessarily the pure trade-off, but um, how did you think about it at the time of? I think when I, when I was thinking really long term uh, in terms of the design of this, and so, you know, I would imagine, for example, that you know, when when Tezos has five, 10 years of history, you may not have a real, maybe you, maybe at that point you don't have a release every three months, so they're very, very minor. And so in that respect, uh, by that point, the time between releases is not very important because over time you converge, you add all the features you want. It's you know, like, there's, there, there's some plateau that happens in terms of innovation and so on and so forth. And so um, I, I, I did consider like making this uh, period go uh, start to be shorter and then like grow so that over time just the governance cycles would be sh would be longer and longer and longer you know start with maybe like two week governance cycle and, and, and progressively increase them but I figured that it was like optimizing too much for the transient part I would say and not enough for uh, what mattered and also there's another constraint which is you know the, the three months period it is also constrained by you want to make sure that everyone has time to see the proposal you want to make sure that everyone can uh, test it you want to make sure that there's no sort of uh, gameplay, you know, uh, very often people talk about how on-chain governance can be gamed and so on and so forth. And that's, I think that's true when you have protocols which 
basically, you know, especially like ap application protocols which have a token vote and then within one block to make a decision. And sure, you know, you can flash loan your way out of like getting <laughs> this kind of governance. It's a very different story when you have a three months process with 80% supermajority, like many votes. So it, it was kind of, you know, it, it was kind of a slow window by design, but that means because this three months period can be a little slow, especially for a new protocol like Tezos, um, you want to make sure that you make you, you use this time very judiciously. You have to be very um, uh, careful about about your timing. Right, got it. Um, and the uh, the other, uh, I don't know, uh, Gabriel, if you wanted to add anything, and you know, you yeah, yeah, uh, I do. Well, uh, I, I think a thing is um, very underappreciated that I actually came to appreciate while working on Tezos um, is. Uh, how coordination between uh, so many entities is hard. Um, when you think about it, right, right now we're talking about proposals and things like this. So we're putting a like a very strong phases uh, on the protocol. But um, if you look at Tezos, there is actually much more than the protocol. Uh, you can talk about the shell, you can talk about the client, you can talk about the tools, you can talk about the programming language being built on top of this. And you actually have to coordinate all of this and it doesn't happen magically. So uh, if you look at existing institutions that do this, they, like the, the, their coordination mechanisms uh, has been built over decades or centuries for some. Here, we, like, we are both trying to have something that evolves quickly uh, and uh, to have something that is resilient and has nice coordination mechanisms and things like this. And it's just like uh, <laughs> really hard to get right. Um, we, we don't want to do the, the thing, you know, where uh, you, you move quickly and break fast or something like this. Uh, I forgot the startup motto. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of do. Like, you, you don't want to break things, but you do want to move fast. And um, the, the fact that it's a motto of startup shows you that there is a very strong, like, trade-off there uh, to make. Uh, and so you, you might say some things like uh, three months is very long or very slow and things like this. But if you think about it from uh, the coordination standpoint and from the institutional standpoint and from the resiliency uh, standpoint, it's actually very short. It means that every three months, you have to be 100% confident that you built a new thing that won't break uh, like a really big ecosystem. And <laughs> when you phrase it like this, three months is very, very short and you need to build very strong processes to get this kind of guarantees. Uh, that's why, for instance, on Tezos, there is a strong emphasis on formal verification. It's because we want to get to, like, close to that kind of guarantees, but it's not only about technical processes. You, you have a whole bunch of social things behind the scenes that <laughs> are just hard and uh, effortful. So, yeah, I think this is very underappreciated, but it's critical. And uh, I, I will say we need, we need all the hands that we can get on board. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, we never had enough people to work on this. Yeah, and you can also even just to throw in a point. I think you can also just imagine that there would be, um, you know, any, you know, if Tezos is, as Tezos becomes, you know, sort of a success, you could imagine, you know, a really wide range of stakeholder types too, and just managing that many different types of of stakeholders uh, and voice inside of the process, not just you know bakers and community members, but also people building on the platform, people who have. Um, you know, real real concerns about you know maybe contracts breaking or uh, whatever. Um, so one one thing actually I want to maybe target also to to Gabrielle, maybe building on that what you what you just said is um, what could actually be done to I, I know I think you 
thought a lot about maybe like what how could Tezos um, handle upgrades better, like like in like like in the architecture itself or in the um, you know making the 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 um, the the protocol like more modular or more um, amenable to 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 change you know to small uh, refinements etc. Um, you know it'd be really interesting to maybe hear um, your thoughts there as well and uh, everyone else as well. Uh, I can start then. Um, historically, I've put a strong emphasis on uh, technical choices, especially with regard to architecture. Uh, for, for instance, having things be uh, much more modular than what they are, uh, strong emphasis on unit testing and uh, things like this. Uh, I think right now I would like to put the emphasis on rather something else. Um, it's uh, basically having enough managers. Uh, <laughs> The, the project is very big, there are many, many components, and it's not possible for any single person to oversee all of those. Uh, it, it's literally impossible. So let, let's talk about just Mikkelsen, uh, because that's what I work uh, a lot on, uh, whether it is from the protocol standpoint or from a legal standpoint. On Mikkelsen, you, you have a lot of moving parts. Uh, you, you have the typer, you have the serializer, you have the interpreter, uh, you have the sequencer of all those operations with the concurrency model and things like this. And ideally, you will get, I don't know, uh, one person focus on each of those components. Uh, you, you have the formal verification front with the specification and Mishokok, you have the optimization front, uh, you have the developer experience front, and you will get, uh, you will need again uh, one person to be accountable for each of those things because each of those things are like big topics that, that require a lot of effort and accountability and someone to uh, hardly optimize, uh, like aggressively optimize for that. And uh, the, the thing is, from a point of view, the, I, I believe this is our main bottleneck. We, we have a big technical workforce, we have all the good ideas, we now have good processes, but right now we, we just need uh, people to handle this. So, for instance, uh, I did a bunch of small improvements on Mikkelsen uh, six months ago. Other people at Nomadic, uh, like uh, Ilias Garnier or uh, Raphael Coderlier or Mehdi Boazis, uh, did also uh, their, their share of improvements. But until very recently, we didn't have any actual person dedicated full-time to work on uh, Mikkelsen improvements. And it so happens that we uh, have uh, one now at Nomadic and uh, another one at uh, Marigold, the new team that will uh, work with uh, the, the person from Nomadic. And now it means that all those ideas that we've uh, been developing uh, for, for months or years for some, uh, and all this pro uh, and this big process that we now have and this reliable schedule will be able to be realized through those two people that are dedicated full-time to optimize Mikkelsen. And the, the obvious answer to this will be, but why didn't we have uh, people dedicated to this uh, before? And the answer is, we, we just don't have enough people. Uh, there, there were other people dedicated to other things that were as cr uh, critical or even more crucial. And it, that's very recent. And now that we have this, we'll be able to move forward much quicker. And now that we have good processes, it will be easier to find people to, to manage a, a piece of the project. But we're, we're still bottlenecked like this. We, we still need more people to work on those crucial matters. And it's not a very attractive position. Because uh, whenever there is a problem, you will get the fallouts uh, on yourself. And if everything is working well, things will just look normal. Uh, so it, it's not trivial either uh, to find very motivated people for this kind of position. So I guess that's where I am uh, lately uh, on the high city situation. Right. Yeah, I'd be interested in others' uh, thoughts on that as well. 
basically what can be done to to make the um, make Tezos easier to upgrade, particularly on the on the, on that uh, time frame. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I'll let Adrian answer right now. It's a very short answer from my side. I think. Um... Yes, having good people understand the code base is important. Having good testing is important. Um, but I think that one of the major bottlenecks right now is that a lot of the parts of the protocol are very tightly interleaved with other parts. So you start twisting and you have to be aware that if you twist this knob over here, it may start breaking things in the interpreter or the gas model. And so really starting to pull this apart, um, I think that will help a lot of the work to be able to happen parallel effectively. So where not some magical person has to look at it and go like you're twisting over here but this will break it over here so fix it over here but rather you can modify the parts independently and they like they still work together and i think that should be really the focus for us um for for the short term right now i i think medium term we should really strive for a formal specification and verification of the whole protocol to be honest it's like at some point, we always need this. It can be a set of magical people, but uh, we, we need this uh, uh, this magic power that tells you, uh, okay, if you touch this part of the code, it will break this other part of the code, which seems unrelated. Uh, it happened many times in, in the past. And it's either a, a magician or formal verification that can achieve this, uh, to, to be honest. So right now, what we do is that we do uh, as many code reviews as we can, as many thorough code, re code reviews as we can, in particular. And we try to increase a lot the, the test coverage, uh, being a, a system test coverage or unit test coverage. But in my personal opinion, it, it will never be enough. We never achieve 100% confidence in the changes uh, that we do, unless we can actually prove that the changes are safe. So I'm not sure how uh, far in the future we, we are uh, talking about. Uh, but I think this is a point where we'll be able to uh, 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 propose changes that we are 110% uh, sure uh, that they are safe and they won't break anything. I think more practically, one of the things that we need and we're getting anyway is, and, and there's no substitute for, is just experience. Uh, of course, you know, there's a code and the code could be breaking things, but sometimes it's not just a code breaking thing uh, or it's other parts. So for example, in the upgrade to Delphi, you know, the vast majority of nodes and bakers upgraded without a hitch, um, but there were a few people who were running um, just the previous version of the node and they were running it in Docker. So if you were running the previous version of the node, compiled from source it was working, but if you were running it in Docker specifically, there was one executable missing from Docker, which prevented compilation of a protocol and that didn't work. So it, you know, formal verification, more people and so on and so forth, that doesn't necessarily catch that. I think what catches this type of thing is checklist. You know, in the same way that when you, uh, when a plane takes off, you have a very, you have a long checklist of all the things that you need to verify before uh, the plane takes off. And those things have been built through experience. And so, the more experience there is in this uh, whole upgrade process, um, the more things you learn. And, and, and you know, this checklist could simply be like, call this person because you know, like, uh, have we, you know, have we talked to the people running blocks, like with major block explorers, for example, to make sure that they have they have, they have tested their block explorer on the uh, on the update. Same thing with wallets. So there's a lot of also intangibles which are not like directly engineering related, but which are important to uh, to manage in the upgrade process. Um, you know, I guess that actually is a good segue into um, the next question, though, which is, um, you know, how can the speed and regularity of, um, you know, these upgrades, you know, sort of serve as a 
competitive advantage for Tezos. I mean, that's sort of always been the the calling card. The uh, you know what what sort of put out you know proposed in the um, original um, you know white paper and position paper. Um, uh, but it'd be really interesting to hear you know how like you know tangibly uh, you know it 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 turns into a competitive advantage. Um, you know, if you want to think of it in the market with developers with um, you know with people choosing a you know a place to um, to build things or simply people who are interested in you know sovereign money. <laughs> um, it's not immediate, so I, I think the reason why we didn't give any immediate answer is because you you wanted to tie uh, the uh, new release process to uh, end user uh, experience. It's not uh, quite as immediate. Um, however, I can answer the question uh, with indirect links. Uh, basically, if we have this uh, new regular process, as explained before, uh, people who want to make amendments and changes to Tezos. Uh, won't be afraid uh, to delay uh, to have them delayed. Uh, they won't try to rush them, so there there will be more confidence, lower uh, stress levels for people who develop. Um, we will be more confident is what uh, what uh, is being shipped uh, because we know it won't be rushed at the last minute and things like this. And overall, it mostly empowers uh, people to build on Tezos uh, and to to actually uh, make the changes that we designed uh, up front, uh, which is the, the main bottleneck uh, once we know what we want to add to Tezos. So yeah, uh, once we have a better process, uh, we can do better changes uh, more quickly, more regularly. And of course, this is translated in new features for users uh, or more efficient or cheaper prices. Um, I guess then, uh, unless anyone has any other points there, I mean, what, when, um, you know, when should um, the community expect um, the next, uh, the next proposal, uh, you know, so, you know, 008, or, you know, I think it's already been announced that it's um, named Edo, uh, what, uh, what features um, are, are planned for, you know, for, for this proposal, and what's, you know, like the importance of them, you know, uh, tangibly for, for um, the community? We are currently in the process of uh, building the the final uh, code branch uh, that should be uh, ejected uh, very soon. So I'm I'm not sure I have a specific time to announce, but uh, should be uh, like in in the next few days, uh, ideally. It will be called Ido. Indeed, it will bring a lot of small incremental updates since this is our new uh, framework, you know, for developing protocols, and uh, three. Yeah, three big features. I mean, three uh, major changes. Uh, the first uh, is uh, the fifth period. So instead of four voting period, we'll have uh, five. And the fifth voting period is basically a period where we'll do nothing. Uh, it's uh, for people uh, uh, who deploy software, software that rely on the network to adapt. Uh, basically, at a point where uh, they are certain that the next protocol uh, will actually activate. You know, uh, in the past we had uh, trouble uh, with uh, people who uh, were not completely sure un until the last minutes of the of the last voting period, the fourth voting period, because this is how it works. 
that the protocol would be activated and thus uh, uh, they didn't want to risk adapting their uh, code or infrastructure uh, to the new protocol. So this, uh, this is because until the last minute in the current uh, voting cycle, uh, the vote would change, you know, uh, there could be a massive uh, uh, no vote uh, that would uh, uh, cancel the activation. So now in, with this fifth period, they will have a specific time to adapt uh, their infrastructure and deploy uh, their nodes and, uh, and other software. And that's about two weeks. So five cycle is about two weeks. So you have five, you'll have five periods. So, so that the idea was adding the fifth period, but also not increasing the time it takes for governance. So in, currently the voting cycle are, uh, are eight cycles, which is about three weeks. So now they're moving to five cycles, which is about two weeks. And so you'll have five two-week cycle, which means the whole thing is done in 10 weeks, which is closer to two months and a half as opposed to uh, three months. So that shaves off also like two weeks out of the, you know, not, not, it's not all, it's, two weeks is not a lot, but it's still nice to, uh, to shave that off. Yep. Um, uh, and this period is called adoption, right? If uh, I remember what. Yes, it is called adoption. Fifth adoption, the fifth period called the adoption period. So that's the first feature. Uh, second feature uh, is uh, sapling, and actually sapling and BLS. So basically, uh, this is a big change in the in the Tezos code base because right now we are integrating the component written in Rust. Uh, so it's not just OCaml and C. We now have a component in Rust. Uh, it was a an unexpected uh, uh, amount of engineering uh, to do this integration of OCaml and, and Rust in the code base. And so uh, we added uh, sapling as, a, as an instruction in Michelson. So Michelson smart contracts can, know, can now have a, a, um, the primitive from sapling. So for those who don't know, sapling is the, the zero knowledge circuit of uh, Zcash. Uh, and uh, we also bring BLS, which is also written in Rust, uh, which is also another set of uh, of instruction that uh, of cryptographic instruction. Uh, so that's the the second part. I think it was already well announced and discussed uh, in a lot of series. So I'm not sure we should dwell a lot of, on this. And the last part is tickets, uh, which is a mechanism. Uh, that allows uh, smart contracts to uh, to give to provide signatures uh, of uh, uh, to other smart contracts. So it it allows to implement a lot of things like uh, 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 permissions or uh, tokens in a way that's very uh, clever and uh, and simple. So this is done with only three, I think, new instructions to Michelson, and it will uh, unlock a, a lot of good. Uh, um, Concurrency stuff. So these are the three main uh, uh, things that uh, Edo will bring to Tezos if it's activated, uh, voted and activated. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, a, a couple of questions from the audience need to mix in. Um, so uh, how, how are you, you know, you know, one of the things that Gabriel mentioned before is that um, one of the challenges is needing uh, more developers, um, you know, to to work on uh, core, core development. Um, how are you know how are you going about like getting more people uh, if it's if it's an issue? So uh, you know, what what does recruiting look like? What is you know how how are, how are um, you know more people being onboarded into uh, 
in the process? Uh, I mean, we, we are already doing this, but it takes time, but uh, uh, I, can, I can explain. Um, for instance, uh, Nomadic uh, is constantly uh, recruiting new people. Uh, I'm uh, making a new team, uh, Marigold, composed of five people who has started this week uh, to work on the protocol. And uh, the, the thing is, yeah, this just takes time. Like, for instance, uh, I could have tried to find uh, 50 people uh, and uh, we, we will have enough money to hire all of them, uh, but then it will be impossible to construct uh, the, the management or the hierarchical uh, structure uh, to make them all work. So the, the short answer is that we are already doing this. It's just hiring new people. It's just that you cannot hire big batches of people when you don't have the institutional uh, capacity to manage them, so you must do this over time. I'm not sure there is any big mystery there. Sorry, our secret sauce. Got it. Um, another uh, another question we got was, um, you know, how can we incentivize uh, more bakers to vote uh, on chain uh, besides, you know, you know, sort of the besides off chain nudging? I think uh, Arthur, you had an idea here, right? That you published on Agora. Oh yeah, your your sound is off. It's called nudging, so I'm not sure the person says like besides the nudging thing that I suggested or besides other off-chain nudging. Uh, the one thing is like first of all, off-chain probing does work. Uh, you know, the, it, uh, there's a there's a category uh, in the Tizos Common Rewards called vote whip, which is someone who goes and like talks to the bigger. I'm like, hey, you should vote. Uh, I, I I think people should not discount the value that uh, this type of like. Off-chain, uh, off-chain activity and social pressure, uh, it does work. It does matter. So you know, don't think neglect. The one nudge that I had suggested was something very mild. Uh, say if you don't vote, then you get deactivated for the next cycle, and so you lose one cycle of picking. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not slashing, you know, uh, or anything like that. But it's still, uh, it's still very annoying, and I think it would get every baker to vote. Where it gets tricky is that you don't want people to just have like run a script to just like vote abstain just so that they don't they don't get nudged out, uh, which, which which could happen if uh, if you do that to people. You'd, you'd rather like that, that the people who would actually like look at the proposal and care about the proposal as opposed to to abstain. Especially since you have if you have a really bad proposal, for example, and you need to like go out and convince uh, bakers to vote against it. If they have a script that abstain automatically, it may be too late. So you know, by nudging them to, for, to to have to vote, maybe they they automate it and they and do the wrong vote. So it's not clear to me how um, how important uh, how how valuable it is to try to push people too hard to uh, uh, to vote. Uh, at least uh, have picking your incentives to vote a little uneasy about it. So I, I don't have a great answer, unfortunately. I think honestly, I think social pressure is quite useful. Yeah, I'm I'm very much in the camp of believing that it's like you can't pay people to pay attention to governance process like it's like it wouldn't work if we pay everyone ten dollars if they vote correct if they vote in the u.s election it's like maybe more people would vote but it would probably lead just to more random votes which probably decreases the quality of the voting overall um so i think really in the end it comes down to delegators making choices where they delegate to bakers that engage with the governance process and that the delegators sort of uphold the social pressure on their bakers so that the bakers have an incentive to care. Um, like ideally, if a baker doesn't care, he doesn't get delegations. That'd be sort of the ideal model. 
Um, and I think we should be striving more towards that. Uh, another question we got was um, semi-related. Uh, is <clears throat> any ideas on incentivizing testers uh, on, on test nets uh, somehow? Uh, maybe an invoice to pay uh, testers. Just running a testnet for the sake of running a testnet, you can incentivize that slightly. What you can do is just say, like, you look at the baking reward that someone collected at the end of the testnet, and then you pay them a small amount proportional to that. So that would get a lot of people running the testnet. And that's useful, you know, and that compensates possibly the person just for, like, taking the time to run a server. So you can do that. Um, it's It doesn't mean, you know, like, what's most useful, though, in a testnet is not having many people run it. Although that does serve a purpose because your testnet is more realistic if there's more people running it, right? There's some like concurrency or latency issues that you might not find if you have just like three nodes on AWS running it. So there's some value in incentivizing just running the testnet. The main value is incentivizing people to find bugs in a testnet. And so I think that the bug bounties have been a bit neglected and, uh, and renewing them and having like larger uh, more effective bug bounties for finding any uh, any bug in a testnet, finding any regressions, or it could be just like incompatibility between various software and so on and so forth, uh, should be revived. And I, I think that's potentially more useful than just saying like, oh, run the testnet. Just to follow up, uh, in the two last questions there, there is always the question of uh, how can you incentivize a behavior that is not easily measurable? And Usually, if you do so, you will always uh, get uh, mediocre uh, results at best and bad results uh, at worst. We usually want some finer behavior than, as Arthur said, just uh, voting abstain automatically or just uh, deploying a testnet automatically. Uh, one of the role incentives is that you, you need to like be very careful about incentivizing exactly what you want. And not some things that's like a proxy to what you want, because otherwise you end up like screwing up the you end up screwing up the incentives. And that, that incentive design is super hard. Uh, is there uh, there any estimate uh, for when uh, the tender bake and Plebia proposal uh, are, are going to be injected? So this, I'm not sure I will answer the. Uh... Question exactly. Uh, as for Tendermint, uh, at least at Nomadic, we have uh, two uh, prototypes of Tendermint variants. Indeed, what is, one is called Tenderbake. Uh, both of them, we've been running uh, private test nets uh, who have run uh, uh, for uh, a few weeks, uh, both of them in laboratory conditions, but that's still uh, a progress. Um, I hope we can make this network public. Uh, reasonably soon. Uh, that's probably what I can say right now. Uh, on the question of uh, Plebeia, uh, again, uh, uh, so two things. First is this will probably not be an injection because actually it's in the storage part, which is not uh, directly the economic protocol, but more like the shell implementation. Uh, also, there are technical details like the context hash format, which uh, tie it to the protocol, but that, that, that's a detail. Um, again, <laughs> there is work on this. I'm not sure we can uh, uh, give a very precise estimate of uh, uh, when this will be included in the node. I would hope uh, uh, 
in the first part of next year, but uh, let's not promise uh, hard uh, deadlines. So I know that the, the team behind uh, Airman, which is a current storage, and the team that worked on Plebeia are working together to try to like merge something and get some something joint. Uh, Plebeia by itself has been running for a while, uh, so you know you can run a node with Plebeia uh, today. But I, there's um, there's some work being done right now on the uh, on the interface uh, between that and a protocol. Uh, it turns out that if you give the protocol a little more flexibility to what it can query, in particular, if you let the protocol do batch queries, for example, uh, you can get a lot of time. I think that's super important. We've been talking about the uh, uh, speeding up Mikkelsen, and uh, there's a saying, you know, in, in, uh, saying it's Amdahl's law uh, for like parallel computing, where um, if you um, you know, if you add some parallelism, at some point you hit a bottleneck, which is a sequential task. The same thing, you can speed up Mikkelsen all you want. If you're spending half of your time reading from disk and half of your time, uh, you know, making Mikkelsen computation, what happens if you make like Mikkelsen compu uh, computation a, a million times faster? Well, then your whole thing is just two times faster because you still have the 50% that, uh, um, that was doing disk access. So really um, like, Optimizing disk access, disk reads for smart contracts goes really hand in hand with um, with Mikkelsen optimization. One aspect of that, by the way, is not tied to the storage, is not tied to Plebeia. Yeah, it's a proposal that I think is super important. It's having an explicit cache for smart contracts. So that if a smart contract is called very often, it stays in memory and it doesn't pay uh, as large of a gas cost in order to be called. That I think is like, a, a, like a super, like a, a super easy low hanging fruit to uh, to grab, but very uh, very valuable in terms of like uh, contracts. Because if you look at any smart contract uh, network, most of the time it's the same contracts being called over and over and over. And so, you know, if you can automatically load these contracts in a cache, you spend uh, you you free yourself a, a, a great a great lot of gas. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess actually following up on that caching question, you know, how or uh, answer, um, you know, is, is that being worked on? I think, Gabriel, maybe you guys are, are exploring it. Yep. Uh, there is one guy from Marigold that started this week to work on this. Cool. And and uh, I guess what, what obstacles exist there? I mean, um, you know, is there a, a, a clear path in sight or is there uh, still lots of design and such left to do? Uh, there, there is no design. The, the storage functions in the code base are actually a piece of code okay. that is made and that uh, makes Got this it. easy. So it shouldn't be hard. It's just that the, this person is new, so they have to get acquainted mm -hmm. to the code base. Then you have to test it uh, because this is gas, so this is critical. Uh, but uh, that's mostly it. Yeah. Got it. Um, uh, the answer to a lot of questions like these are what Gabriel. Uh, uh, told uh, at the very beginning, which is we have limited uh, workforce and we try to prioritize stuff. And then some things are not so difficult, but we are never done because, well, you know, there were other priorities to do. But uh, exactly, and that's why I'm actually quite hopeful. That now we actually have some people that are dedicated to those tasks. Uh, we have one people from Nomadic and one people, uh, one person from Marigold, uh, dedicated to optimizing their interpreter. Uh, we now have one person uh, dedicated to work on this uh, hot and cold storage, uh, caching uh, things in the storage. So from now on, the, those things at least uh, should move on much quicker uh, <laughs> than uh, where they were, even though we already knew in the past that we had to work on those. Uh, 
another question we got um, <clears throat> was, uh, will you use OCaml uh, dash interop done by simple staking, or are you developing your own uh, interop uh, for uh, Rust and OCaml? So technically speaking, this is not what is uh, uh, used in the sapling interface because, well, it, it was not uh, ready at the time we started this. Uh, uh, so right now, this is uh, it's a bit of a shame, but uh, that was the easiest and safest way. Uh, we go through C. Uh, so it's Rust to C and then C to OCaml uh, in DevOps, uh, mostly because the Zcash folks already uh, published uh, a C interface to their library. Uh, we plan to use this uh, indeed, and actually uh, uh, there is an e a joint effort uh, to uh, make sure that this uh, OCaml interop is uh, safe and uh, and sound. So yeah, we, we plan to use this in the future. But right now, unfortunately, it goes through C. <laughs> uh, Just a note on this C part. This is traditionally how you bridge Rust into other languages. It isn't like some random hack that you came up with. This is how you bridge Rust into Python, Rust into Java, Rust into Go or Swift. Um, yeah. So this is not a super random hack we came up with. This is the traditional way that you bridge Rust into other languages. Uh, another, uh, you know, question we got was, um, you know, would you uh, would you see a benefit in increasing you know, in increasing vote activity by decreasing the amount of tests per role. So basically, would lower role size, uh, you know, lead to an uh, increase in vote activity, I guess? Why it would? I mean, the, the lower role size question comes often. And you know, my, my answer is always like, look, the sometimes some people assume that the role size is set uh, as a minimum. So like, oh, well, you should have at least uh, 8,000 tests. Otherwise, you know, it's not a good idea to have you even involved. Uh, that, that is not how it, at all how it works. It's just like it's rounded down to the nearest 8,000. And the reason you round it down is because at the end of the cycle, you have to go over every role, right? And there's about 80,000 roles. So you have to go over 8,000, which takes some time, which is why the node is slower uh, right now at the end of a, uh, of a cycle, which is why some people miss endorsements at the end of the cycle. Uh, and so anytime you want to, like, you know, I, in an ideal world, the role size would be just like one microtest, right? There's no reason threshold other than performance. And so if you can increase the performance so that, you know, we, I, I think the performance is already on the limit at the end of the cycle, to be honest, because you shouldn't like see people missing endorsements at the beginning and end of cycles. So, um, you know, until you can improve, uh, increase the performance at the end of cycles, you gotta have uh, you gotta have um, this roll size, and then as soon as you know, as soon as you improve that performance, if you improve that performance to x, by all means, you can slash the, the roll size by two. Um, but it's um, you know, it's it's really tied to this performance issue at the end of uh, of, of cycles. I'm not sure that reducing the rolls. I think you you may see more subtle backers definitely if you have a lower roll size. I think that would be a good idea. Uh, and then I don't know that you would see more uh, voting activity. I mean, you might see more votes. Uh, as a number of bakers voting, I don't think you would see necessarily like more votes as a percentage of total roles voting in the uh, in, uh, in the uh, proposal. Gotcha. <clears throat> uh, I guess to segue into um, uh, you know uh, another set of questions would be um, you know we obviously talked about the the caching and um, you know some of the other um, potential optimizations, but tender bake, etc. 
Um, but what other features are being explored for for future proposals? Um, you know, what are you guys? What what is everyone excited for uh, in twenty twenty one? You know, what kinds of uh, features, functionality, and improvements? Sir, um, one simple thing we we have mentioned uh, storage, uh, cache for storage, and things like this. Another thing that uh, is being considered and likely be worked on quite soon uh, is uh, compressing things. Uh, that are stored on chain, for instance, uh, compressing Mikkelsen contracts. Uh, right now, uh, Mikkelsen contracts are represented as uh, with their machine representations encoded in bytes and things like this, and uh, there, there is no compression effort there. So by adding some compression to smart contracts, we should be able to greatly increase uh, the, the size limit on contracts uh, quite uh, cheaply. So uh, that's one low-hanging fruit. Um, other things that I'm excited about uh, are things like uh, TZIP16 and metadata and moving some part of that uh, in the protocol so that we can later add uh, events uh, so that we can have uh, generic reducers uh, and things like this. Uh, that will make the developer experience of writing your smart contracts much easier. So the idea is that with this kind of feature, you could write your smart contract, uh, define some views that will uh, tell wallets how to interact with the contract uh, define some reducers uh, that will tell uh, indexers how to generically index your contract without having to write any kind of custom code, uh, and you will get like all of those things uh, for free. So the, this is some uh, other feature uh, that I'm uh, very interested about. And the last one uh, would be views. Uh, so views are a way to interact with other smart contracts. Uh, there are some design con uh, concerns that we have to solve first, but beyond this, there is already an implementation ready and things like this, so it can uh, go quite quickly now that we have one person dedicated to work on this and to follow up uh, on the design. Uh, views along with tickets are, from my point of view, two of the biggest hurdles to uh, interactions between smart contracts and Tezos, so I'm uh, quite hyped uh, by those. On my end, um... I think the opportunity one of the things I'm excited about would be uh, the performance improvement in Mikkelsen because it was already quite a leap. Uh, you know, it's four times for X reduction in gas consumption just with Adelphi. I think there's an even bigger leap coming um, with a with a recent optimization in uh, in Mikkelsen. So optimization of Mikkelsen plus optimization of the storage layer plus optimization of um, oh, there's that one uh, plus optimization of the uh, uh, of the consensus algorithm. Um, compression of transactions that gets you um, that gets you a lot of performance, uh, and so I think uh, this uh, this performance aspect is, is, is quite uh, is quite exciting. Uh, another thing I really like, uh, I think Adrian can talk a little more about this, is uh, the idea of using sapling, but not just per asset, but a global sapling circuit for all assets uh, on the chain. I think that's super uh, that's super attractive, um, and. Uh, the third type of, uh, of feature also is in Mikkelsen itself. So the design of Mikkelsen has what is called breast-first calls. So essentially, a Mikkelsen contract will return a bunch of calls, and they get into a uh, they get into a queue. Compare that to uh, Ethereum, where they put them into a stack. Now, there's different pros and cons of the queues and the stack. The benefit of the queues is that you don't like get the reentrancy problems that necessarily that you would get into uh, into Ethereum. And you know, to this day, there are still uh, a lot of reentrancy hacks on Ethereum 
causing a lot of uh, causing a lot of losses. So definitely pre prevention against reentrancy is super important. But it is also uh, it, it it makes it much harder to do some composability when you uh, when you do um, our approach BFS as opposed to DFS. And so um, there are ways to deal with that. So tickets, for example, is a great way to get composability without uh, doing DFS call. Um, that I think is going to uh, uh, to enable a lot of things. But I also think that there are ways to enable DFS calls without uh, having the reentrancy problems by blocking them at the protocol level. And so the introduction of DFS calls should make it a lot easier to write um, very composable smart contracts while still uh, keeping the properties of of, of preventing these uh, reentrancy. Uh, Bugs. So that's um, that's a big one. Mention it, the multi-asset field pool. I'm pretty excited about the multi-asset field pool. Specifically, if you care about sort of low volume, high value assets like NFTs for houses and things like this, uh, the current sapling circuit gives you relatively weak privacy for those because people can tell which type of assets you're interacting with. Whereas the multi-asset field pool sort of that once a year housing transfers are hidden between all the coffee payments that are happening XYZ on the chain. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm super excited for Mass, which we'll probably see in sort of 2021. I think the the uh, feature uh, that I'm most excited about in the next few months, probably I, I hope to work on this personally, is I seem to remember that I talked about this in the last uh, town hall, actually, is uh, the pipelining of log validation. So it's a bit of an under the hood feature, to be honest, not very, uh, um, I mean, no, not uh, really easy to explain, but basically it is something that will bring a major uh, 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 simplification in, in the code uh, of the mempool and the baker and, and the node and should be allow us to uh, uh, have a major throughput increase. Um, so basically the idea is that right now the mempool is tezo in Tezos is uh, 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 required to uh, evaluate and validate all the operations um, and uh, it should not. Uh, it should basically uh, just act as a memory storage and, uh, and then uh, it's the job of the protocol to decide if uh, operations are valid or not. And uh, yeah, so so I think I, I went into the detail in the last town hall, and that's still probably the first. Uh, uh, I think one of the next big uh, uh, easy uh, or low hanging fruit in terms of throughput and uh, and uh, performance improvement for Tezos. That's going to come uh, as soon as possible. <clears throat> uh, another question we got was. Um... Is there any work uh, under ongoing on uh, on charting, uh, you know, for, for yeah, on charting? Um, I don't know of any uh, direct work on charting, but from my point of view, it, it, yeah, I'm speaking only my name, but it, it's not really a priority. What I mean by this is that uh, I'm much more interested in having a very performant uh, base layer, uh, regular blockchain, after which uh, I would be more interested in building uh, strong layer tools uh, than sharding, which make the concurrency model uh, of smart contracts much more complicated. And that at least uh, is less understood by me. So uh, I prefer to have uh, 
very good uh, base layer and then build uh, some regular layer two solutions and try sharding and try to make Tezos future-proof for sharding. That's my point of view. So I, I, I can't speak for the different uh, development groups working on Tezos and who's, who may be working on sharding or not. I, I had some conversation with some people in the medical labs about sharding, so I think some people are looking into it. I'll just mention my opinion because I, I think many people might have read my blog post from early 2017 saying why isn't Tezos like pursuing sharding as a, uh, uh, as a scaling strategy. And it proves something uh, which basically now goes by uh, ZK rollup somewhat. Uh, and it's been hailed as like a scaling solution on, on Ethereum. So I think I, I, I think the blog post nailed it in, for 2017, especially given that they, they didn't uh, really sharding on any uh, on any timeline that they were uh, envisioning. Now that being said, uh, sometimes people think that it means I'm like opposed to sharding. I'm, I'm I'm not. I think there's a lot of value in sharding. I just think that the research and the thinking in 2017 for sharding wasn't really ready, and that it was not a good idea to focus on it at the time. I think it makes a lot more sense now. Um, there's been a lot, like the proposal that, I'm, that I saw in 2017 for sharding didn't make any sense. The one that I'm seeing now, which are used by protocols like Polkadot, Near, Serum 2.0, are starting to make uh, more sense. I actually kind of like the, uh, the Polkadot one. Uh, I agree with John Gabriel, so I think the priority is really the main chain, first and foremost, and you can get a lot out of layer two solutions. So I would focus on that first. There is a reason to do some sharding though, which has not to do with the functionality that it enables, but you know, uh, this space is a lot of uh, this space is somewhat of a beauty contest, and so you might want to have some shards, maybe simple shards, just for the same reason that a peacock has to have these very nice feathers, you know, very shimmering feathers. The feathers don't do anything, but they're here and they, and they make you a beautiful peacock. And if you're a beautiful peacock, you get to reproduce and you get to have more beautiful peacocks. And so all the peacocks now have these like giant uh, feathers, which don't really serve a purpose. And so to that end, uh, <laughs> it may be worse to have some shards just uh, just to say like, look, you know, you think sharding is so great, we have some shards, you're happy, and then focus on the, on, on the main chain. It's a little bit cynical, but it, I think it's a reality of uh, the space. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, uh, does anyone else have any thoughts there? Uh, if not, I think that um, we'll, we'll take that as our, our final uh, question. Um, and just want to say uh, thanks to everyone who um, you know joined us today, and thanks to Arthur, Gabriel, Adrian, and, and Benjamin for uh, for another uh, town hall. Um, this is the the final one uh, uh, technical town hall uh, for for the year. Um, and you can follow us uh, on social to stay up to date uh, on upcoming sessions uh, on Twitter uh, and Instagram. The handle is at tquorum underscore. Uh, all past uh, sessions are available to stream on tquorum.com. Uh, we hope you'll uh, join us again next week for a conversation with two of the newest council members uh, on the Tezos Foundation Council. So uh, thanks uh, everyone for uh, for joining uh, this you know this week, and um, uh, hope to see you on a future tquorum. Bye, bye, guys. Bye-bye.